Hi, welcome to. Mm, oh God, let me wake up. <laughs> the two of you are going to be like dozing off during this. I feel like we're going to be like, wake up, Trisha, it's your turn. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hello. Happy Halloween. Oh, or, yeah. or whatever. Remember that just happened? Uh, <laughs> not, not my favorite holiday. <laughs> what? I feel like that holiday is the, like it's maximally for children, for the most part. Even though adults continue to enjoy it. Well, I mean, adults, they get to put on their sexy outfits. Sexy nurse, sexy crossing guard, you know, sexy dental hygienist. My favorite is always the sexy crown. Have you seen the sexy crown outfit? Oh. It's exactly what you think. It's someone dressed up as a Crayola crayon, but like midriff is showing. Oh. They look very slutty. Sexy nuns is probably the worst one. (laughs) I feel like that speaks to a truth. Somewhere deep in there. Jason, what did you take your kids out for Halloween? I did. My kids, this will just show their different personalities. Joel was Captain Marvel. He was very mm-hmm. proud to be kind of a female superhero. And Judah went as himself. There you have it. Yep. Remember when Judah went as a chair? I remember that vividly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he always is something different. But in previous years, like the chair year... It was very difficult to construct the costumes. This year, I didn't have to do anything. It was wonderful. Didn't you? Did you encourage him to dress up and do it? I mean, it is a, it is for him. It's like a holiday for kids. I asked probing questions, and he was just adamant that he wanted to go as himself. You know, we don't let our kids eat a lot of candy, so it's usually like, yeah, they go trick or treating. They can eat a few, and then we donate the rest. Well, this year he said, you know. My basket gets too full every year. Can I go trick-or-treating with a pillowcase so it doesn't get full so quickly? And I said, I don't understand the point. You're not going to be allowed to eat any more candy than you're usually allowed to eat. And he said, well, I don't care at all about the candy. I like going around and seeing people's houses. And when my basket is full, I can't keep going and trick-or-treating. So if I take a pillowcase, I can trick-or-treat longer, which means what's important to me is I get to see more houses. And I was like... Okay, that's cool. Like, I like that. <laughs> so he's a voyeur. I like it. <laughs> Way to twist my innocent child's he's a, Listen, that's how it starts. This is Trisha. Trisha's always peeking into people's windows. She wants to see how people live. And Judah's exactly the same way. Apparently. Congratulations. Thank you. Oh, honey. Oh, yes. When we used to tool around the city, you'd peek oh, in yeah, people's windows true. People would yeah, open the doors like to go in. Lives. People were having a whole lives out there. It was great. Well, uh, I'm just back from Spain. Not a big deal. Not bragging, but totally am. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. You're one of those. There's I am. Thing. Don't I'm even. <laughs> did you join the protesters in Barcelona? I did not join the protesters in Barcelona. Uh, there was one protest, and I saw it, and I ran the other way and <laughs> dived into I don't understand Catalan. I don't know what they were saying. I didn't know which side they were on, what the sides are. So I was like, let me just steer clear of this. It was wonderful. One thing about uh, Spain I found is that nobody eats ever. What? Seemed, nope. There's just no food to have. They have the tapas thing. So they eat every two hours. They eat like two bites of food every two hours. And then by oh, the yeah. end of the night, you're like, 
I had the equivalent of like a, like a protein bar. Like I had like four or five bites of food, but everyone seems to be fine because they're also drinking at the same time. So you're all pulled up. Anyway, um, I was starving the entire time I was there, but also I did not see any obese people while I was there. Yeah, right. They, they hide them. You know, it's so funny. <laughs> yeah, they don't eat. That. They don't have them. They don't it's have funny. them. It's funny you say that because I was, we, I had an exact experience. I love this little tapas bar that I go to in Philly and it is delightful. And so I took a group of my mom's friends there um, just to kind of celebrate, sit outside and eat. But at some point in time, I'm thinking it's fine because we're eating it's a lot of food in tapas bars, really. I mean, because you're just it's a bunch of small plates. So if you you could put together a meal. But at some point in time, after doing this for about two hours, one of my mom's friends were like, so when are we going to eat? <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. When's cocktail hour like, over? I'm ready for the main course. You know what I mean? There's like such a thing about putting... Because I feel like if we had taken all the small plates and put them on a large plate, they would have felt like they were having a meal, but this and also the meals are sort of strange, right? Because it's like meat, a little bit of vegetables, 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 meat. It's like they need to see a chunk of meat but, and two side dishes. But they would me- like yeah, but because a meal isn't just a quantity of food, right? <laughs> yeah, it feels right? like a thing, right? It's a thing, yeah. <laughs> it has to be like, I don't know, how would you even define that? Like, what's a meal? Like, you can't just if I have like forty pigs in a blanket, I didn't eat a meal. This is why we have so many challenges in this country, I think, with eating and weight. Like we like, <laughs> no matter how many appetizers, you gotta have a main course and two side dishes. <laughs> and dessert. And dessert. <laughs> you gotta have dessert. <laughs> and bread. I've been seeing like Obama and Michelle quotes floating around my timeline because they had an event at the Obama Foundation. And I've been side-eyeing them. I don't know if they're quite ready for the moment i remember a while ago we had an obama podcast about whether he was ready for his moment and now i'm looking at it and i'm listening to their quotes and a lot of it is like respectability politics which was always there but it just now feels like it just doesn't make sense in our current world or maybe it feels like some sort of weird retreat i've just been looking at it with like a little side eye what as are I they saying the you know, like Michelle, I think that Michelle was asked about how do you change the mind of a racist or something like that? Like, what do you do? And she's like, I think her quote is something along the lines of, um, you know, I can't change how a white person feels about me. All I can do is go out and sort of be my very best self. And maybe in some way doing that chips away at some little thing in the white person. Right. But that's not why you're doing it. But you're just being your best self. And hopefully you become an example. And everyone's like, mm. wait, what's the correct answer? Yeah, I, mean, I was going to say that interview question itself seemed to yeah, I would put dane. a box out there that kind of forced her to say something like that. Like, what, how can weird. you answer that? That's a weird box, right? It's uncomfortable, right? It's just, it's just, it's just weird. And then Obama did a thing. I think he was just talking about sort of cancel culture and 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 woke. He was using woke in a in a pejorative way, which you know I always sort of wince at because I think. That means that you've sort of like adopted people's ideas of woke when it was really meant to be a legitimate thing. But he was just sort of saying like he doesn't really we have to really recognize that the world is a complicated place and people are complicated and that good people do bad things often. And and I was like, oh, my God, like this is the person. This was his compromise space. Like those people, when he was in office, they never wanted to work with him at all. No matter 
in in Michelle's eyes, no matter how good he was, mm-hmm. and no matter how well intentioned he was, those people wanted his demise, and it didn't change his his sense of urgency or need to compromise from the get. And I just I don't know. It's just it's really it's just weird to watch him now through the lens of this moment, <laughs> or both of them actually. I don't know. I like them better at a distance. <laughs> I they have an impossible task. Yes, they do. When people they ask do. them questions. Yeah. They and do. I think any answer, given the state of politics, given the state of the world, um, given that Obama was the last legitimate president that we had, I don't think that any answer that he gives will satisfy any constituency. Um, no, it's satisfying it's interesting how it's playing though. It's not satisfying black people, but it's satisfying yeah. some people. So I don't think it's but about who is who are these these mamby pamby answers? Who could it possibly be satisfying? People who don't want him to be a force, the people who don't want him to oppose the current regime and become a like a lightning rod. Sure, those people, but really, yeah. like none of the people who were excited about Obama ten years ago are excited about anything he says now. Also, I mean, there is a tacit sort of convention, which seems silly to have political conventions in, in this day and age, but there's just tacit convention that after you're president, you yeah. kind of shut the fuck up. Yes. Well, he kind of has. I mean, he has. Well, yeah. He, he definitely has. And I actually think for him, because he was such a lightning rod, I think it's been really even more the case that it's important that he not say anything about anything. <laughs> yeah. I heard yeah. that. Joe Biden's secret weapon to win the the primary and the presidency is to announce that Michelle Obama will be his running mate. Uh, it that would be a fever dream, and it would confuse many many Americans. And I hope it doesn't happen. <laughs> oh my god! I can't imagine aware. she would do that. I don't. I can't imagine for him. But, but if I'm, she did, what would you do? You'd have to go. You'd have, to, have to vote for Michelle. <laughs> exactly, vote for Michelle. I'm that still waiting Joe. for Michelle to declare her her candidacy i'd vote for her over joe <laughs> which is funny because like what <laughs> honey you don't have to vote for joe it's gonna be bernie the whole come bernie, on bernie, oh, oh like here we bernie oh bernie. oh is the romance back on it's not back on at all <laughs> but <laughs> last thing before you end topics so sure. alexandria ocasio-cortez endorsed bernie sanders yeah and i'm left wondering what no, that's not an out. That's not an outlier. Oh, what's interesting Why though are you is surprised her, by that. Her I'm endorsement. Su- be- because her endorsement carries a lot of weight. She's very aware of it. And Bernie Sanders is not going to win the primary, given that he just had a heart attack. No, I think it's very smart. I think she thinks he she can help him win the primary. I think they think that he can win the primary. But I think what's important about it is that there was no one else in the race that she could endorse. And actually, for the burners, it's actually really important that she did endorse Bernie. Because if Elizabeth bypasses him, which I think she will, then then I don't think that AOC will be seen as someone who betrayed Bernie, which is a very big deal in that case. That's, that's a good point, Trisha. It's a very big deal. So then if Bernie turns and gives it over to Elizabeth, all of his people can comfortably move to Elizabeth. Like, if you notice, the squad endorsed Bernie except for one. Who? Ayana, the black one. Hmm. And she's like, no. Um, so I think it's... Wait, um, the black one? No, I know. Yeah, Ayanna okay. Presley. Um, Is there no, another one? There are two black squad members. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, uh, Ilhan is black. Right. Oh, okay. 
Whoops. I tricked you. <laughs> you tricked me. <laughs> Some anti-East African sentiment going on. I, What's going oh on? They're not really black. No, I Whatever. didn't say that. Oh, I'm cutting this whole part out. Yeah, you cut this whole part out. No, no, no. But I think, I mean, I think it's interesting, right? Because I think for Ayana, it's a big deal. It's a, it's Ayana, it's a big deal because of, um, because it's Massachusetts, right? And Elizabeth, I think that has that there has to be some care there. Um, but anyway, it's just it's interesting to watch it. Yeah, that's my rationale for it, Jason, is that it's important that AOC and I couldn't see AOC doing anybody else. But the intriguing thing is AOC um, put the Bernie camp put out a campaign um, video and it is so uncomfortable what she says. She says something along the lines of I never thought that um, I couldn't see the possibilities or I didn't think anything was worth anything until Bernie told me that there was a reason for me to be or something like that. And it was very like, it was she very said this that from the gate. Like I, I'm, I'm not surprised at all because when she first started running, she basically invoked Bernie and democratic socialism and she was going to be the Bernie of, you know, of her district. Yeah. It was really interesting. It's, it's kind of the dynamics of exactly of the way she said it. It was like, he didn't, he's the one that gave me purpose which is sort of an uncomfortable thing to listen to from a woman talking about an old white guy. Just weird. It was really weird. Like I didn't Weird think... or de rigueur? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Young women talking about old white guys. Hmm, where have I heard that before? From I everywhere just... at every corner of the planet at all times. Yeah, it was a little uncomfortable sounding. Like she didn't think that she had merit or value until Bernie gave her a path for understanding that. I mean, it was uncomfortable sounding. But you know, if it's her truth, it's her truth. But it was um it was interesting to hear it said out loud. All right, let's jump into topics. Jason, me, and Trisha were having a spirited conversation over text message, and it was just too much. And I was like, there's no point of us ever saying anything to each other unless we're recording it. And what the issue was in thinking about climate change and thinking about how in projections say that by the end of this century, if we don't do anything, the temperature, average temperature of the planet will raise four degrees Celsius, which is a lot. It's enough to flood a lot of low lying areas that are now at sea level. Our discussion was about where should we focus our attentions as far as stopping this upcoming crisis? I can use fewer plastic bags when I get out of the supermarket. I don't have to leave the water on when I'm shaving. Is the sum of those individual actions enough to slow down climate change? Is it vital or is it distracting to put the responsibility of slowing down greenhouse gas emissions and all the other ish things that are causing climate change on a consumer when there are companies that are literally pumping billions of dollars into all sorts of industries that are doing the environment harm. So Jason, what do you think? I really think we need to be in, in an all of the above mindset this crisis, it's here. It's having a ne ne negative impact now. I think absolutely you can see. I mean, the data is clear. If we, we need to have public policy, we need to have different corporate behavior. Without question, I guess I would say two things on the individual action question. One is that 
I, I am not being self-righteous here because I clearly contribute to the problem. But I think those of us who fly a lot, which all three of us do, and those of us who, you know, drive or get in Ubers or whatever, like we, we are contributing. And I think I I think personal responsibility is really important here in itself. Then I would go a step further and say, you know, this is about a cultural shift too. I mean, the policy changes are needed, the corporate behavior is needed, but we need to change our culture. Uh, we have a culture of consumption. I'm not saying anything profound there, but a culture of consumption and a, a culture in which we are just constantly doing things that are contributing to making the planet less inhabitable for ourselves and our children and future generations. And I think to have a cultural change, like we have to make different individual choices and we should be honest and and uh, communicative with others about the different choices we're making in the hopes of influencing others. I think that's got to be a part of it. And and I'll say one last thing. What, what I'm reminded of on another issue is like the, the gun issue. And I remember when Obama was president, you know, there were people who, Second Amendment folks who were saying, well, yeah, you know, it, it is a real problem. Like these mass killings are a problem. But hey, there are 300 million guns in the country you know, putting in a gun control measure in this state or that, like it's not going to make a difference. And I remember Obama's point was, like he said, I agree that, you know, universal background checks, for instance, is not going to solve the problem in itself because we have a cultural problem with guns. But we've got to do, we got to do a kind of it all. We got to talk about the cultural issue in the video games, et cetera. But we, we also got to, got to do the public policy. Obviously, I think that um, it's an all situation, right? It's better to do all than nothing. Or something. But I always feel like the individual piece is a sort of psychological expression of um, one's will and willingness to change. But what does that even lead to? Does that lead to some maximal thing? Because I feel like we've had a pretty profound environmental movement here f- from for a while in the United States, the 1970s, the 60s and 70s. I didn't see that moving the needle very much. And I mean, so that's like a group of individuals who were willing to make changes. But weirdly enough, I, I mean, like, I don't know if I would even assume that those people who emerged out of that era substantively went about their lives in a very different way. And this is what I mean. I think that people can really disconnect their individual behavior from what they then do in other settings. So, for example, if I... um recycle at home and I do all the things that I need to do, buy a nice car, do whatever. But I'm, say, the head of a corporation. Am I making conscious decisions around the environment when I'm ahead of that corporation? Or do I, like, compartmentalize those actions? I just think that levying taxes and punishing people for wrong choices is the best move for large-scale change, because I really do think people can separate those acts out. I hear that. I, I mean, I want to personalize this for a second, and I just want to pose a question to the three of us, which is, you know, how do we justify continuing to fly places we don't need to fly? Um, our work world is constructed in such a way that they're not going to give me ten hours to drive there, and they're not going to let me. They're not going to allow me to do a plane as well. I mean, this is the thing. What I'm saying is, like, I can make personal choices, but I need supportive policy initiatives to make this really work. 
I can idiosyncratically do my own thing. But I still work and live in a country where my boss is going to give me two weeks of vacation and I don't have a tremendous amount of time to enjoy that. Like, I mean, these are like the practical aspects of like, it's going to take me six hours as opposed to 15 hours to get someplace. Now, if we if we focus on like transport train systems and we had an effective train system, then, hey, that's you know, what I mean, but it's like my individual effort to fly less. Yes, it might make some psychological it might give me like a psychological boost. But when you align it with sort of the practical implications of me existing within a certain society where certain constraints are in place, it it just turns out to be a drop in the bucket in terms of not necessarily the impact on the environment, but my ability to actually maintain that course and keep continue to do it. This conversation isn't either or, or all no. or nothing. And I, I think the seesawing between are corporations and government responsible, are individuals responsible? The answer is yes. So on one hand, individually, if we all decided we were going to not run the water in the bathroom when you shaved or brushed your teeth, then that would make an impact for sure. I don't think anyone's arguing that. The question on my mind is how much money and time and effort are we going to put into getting the message out there that that's what we should do if it should only tackle one tiny part of the problem? Is all that time and money and effort better suited in contacting our representatives, writing letters, and putting pressure on them to put pressure on corporations. So it's not a question of like, it, you know, if I flew less, I would save the planet versus, you know, that's not gonna do anything. Like, of course it would do something. But the question is like, yeah, if let's say I decided I was never flying anywhere again, and my entire life was organized in this way that everything that I had to do was within 60 miles of me and I could drive or take the train or whatnot. Like all of that life change that I'm doing and all the impact that would have not just on me, but on the work that I'm doing, the people around me, is that worthy of the effort versus, versus if we actually turn the attention to corporations and governments, force them and demanded they would do something. Now you talk about, well, what if we all flew less I learned that the emissions from air travel globally only contribute 2% to the problem of emissions, 2%. So yes, let's all immediately stop flying. That is going to solve 2% of the problem. What is the another 98%? Shouldn't we focus there? Not, not only focus there. That's not what I'm saying, but shouldn't we start there? I mean, I have two responses to that. One is and I think you were kind of alluding to this in what you said, but most of us, myself included, are not doing any of the things, right? I'm not contacting Congress very often. I'm not involved in any of the groups you alluded to, Tricia. And, you know, I'm not necessarily flying unless I did buy a hybrid car, but like I, I'm doing like little things here and there. Look, 2%, it's only 2%, but it's 2%. And that's actually, it's on the map, right? It's something. I, I don't know. I keep coming back to the culture. Like there's something, and I'm not trying to, relinquish my own responsibility, something in the culture, like it should be really easy to say, other than what you were saying, Trisha, like if you have to fly for work, you have to fly for work. But put that aside. It should be easy for us to say, you know what, I'm not going to fly anymore unless I have to for work or, or for like, I, I, like I have but to. Why? But why? That's miserable. But why? Do you know what's interesting about that? I think there's a fundamental disconnect in this notion of sacrifice. I, I, 
I just I'm looking at it and I feel like there's been so much effort spent on the individual ability to make small changes in their lives, which I get. I get it. I get there's and a should. There's a should. no, but there eh, there's a psychological stroking that's there. But I, I my point is I think there's an assumption there that you can change culture through individual actions. And I won't deny that. But I think mass action around really concrete two or three big moves, that is a culture shift. The question is, does that culture shift come out of me sitting around and thinking about it and then deciding to act? Or do people act and then I back into and then change my own behavior? Do you see what I mean? It's like- The question is, it's a chicken or egg question. Because uh, if we- Let's say the three of us, the stand-ins for the 7 billion people on the planet, or not even the 7 billion people, like the, the, the two, three, four billion who this is the people who are actually creating the problem. Americans. Um, yeah. Americans, people in the Western world, like yep. the top 50% of the, of the planet, 10% of the planet who's earning all the money. Right. So is it us who are putting, who are changing our lifestyles so that commercial enterprises and governments respond to us? Or do we work to influence the governments, to influence the corporations, to change the products in the way that they do the services, which will then trickle down to the way that we're living our lives? Like, I don't know where we start on that cycle. I think we have to start at both ends. And Jason, I think why I reacted so strongly to what you were saying in the text messaging that we were going back and forth is that I don't know if the answer is like, let's all stop flying or let's stop flying half as much. Like I said, that would be barely a drop in the bucket. But I'm also not saying that we should do nothing because I certainly don't take plastic bags from the um, supermarket anymore if I can handle it. And I, I demand when I do, I, I ask that they do not double bag it because that's useless. So that is something that I am doing. It makes me feel better. And that's that's really great. So that's fine. But it's like you said, Jason, am I writing my Congress people? Am I educating myself from the Green New Deal? Am I identifying companies who are not investing in green technologies? I'm not. And that's the problem. And just yeah. on, because I enjoy numbers. So 2% of global emissions come from air travel. Meanwhile, 100 companies are responsible for 70% of the greenhouse gas emissions. 70%. China alone is 14%. So... I have to ask, Jason, I'll ask of you, are you willing to give up flights? Do you think in your heart of hearts that that will help the environment? Or could you do something else as well? I don't know. I And maybe I, that sounds like a very all or nothing question. I just, do you see what I'm coming from? No, I, I do. I mean, I, I don't think... want us to be distracted by like, oh, I'm not using plastic bags. Oh, I'm not taking flights. I'm helping. You're not. You're really not. You are. You're helping yourself and you're helping psychologically feeling better about what's Yeah, happening. and you're helping the planet 0.0001%, but then you fill up at ExxonMobil with your gas-guzzling car or you order on Amazon like some sort of faucet that's going to control drip, but to ship that faucet to you, it had to come on a plane, the box, it's all boxed up. Like We need a profound societal shift in the way that we think about, well, everything. And how I don't, about, where does that start? How about seatbelts? How about them? I've got one on now. Why? 
why do you, why do people wear why do people wear seatbelts? There was a whole culture when people didn't wear seatbelts. Oh, know? I why remember. Did, why did they start wearing them? It was a massive education campaign. It was education campaign combined with laws that start. I mean, I think it was both of those things. Like people are dying in cars. That was being publicized. Your people are dying in car crashes. You know, you're always better off having the belt on. And it started with if we pull you over for something else and you're not wearing your seatbelt, you can get an additional ticket. And then in some cases we can pull you over just for not wearing the seatbelt. Like it, there was like a tightening, I feel like a gradual tightening of a uh, of public policy that, that pushed. And then also, and then also car safety too, which was like car safety measures were compelled. Cause I mean, I think maybe in Europe, in, in, on your position, Jason, there's, this is where the individual piece is important, right? There was an, there was a public awareness that was raised about safety in cars as well, which then forced manufacturers to redesign cars because the public outcry was so negative. So my sense is that business will always do whatever it's going to do until the public says, no, I agree. I'm not going to. And so, but the question is, I think the assumption has been all along that it's individual efforts that will allow the public to wake up. But I don't actually think so. I think even the climate change marches and all of that is a kind of awakening that then says, okay, I'm scared now. I get it. What do we do? To turn around and then say to that, that mass group of people, uh, you fly less. No, 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 no. I've got a mass group of people now. We have, you have my full attention. How do we direct this into a major policy change or a major policy shift or some sort of punitive tax to someone who is, is has not agreed to cut their emissions and their cars or whatever it is that they're doing. So it's like, because that's, the, I mean, those are where those things need to happen, right? I mean, I don't think an individual person thought, well, I should wear my seatbelt. All of these things coalesced to then force people to say, you know what, it's in my best interest if this, if we have seatbelts and if it all happens. I wonder to some degree, because people have known for a really long time what was happening with the environment. And I wonder if spending all that energy on the individual tech didn't really provide a, a form of distraction until people suddenly started saying, no, this is a crisis point. And now it's not individual action now. It's like everyone's like all hands on deck. What are we supposed to do? That's a real different shift right now. Well, and I'm well, curious. But that's what I'm struck by. I mean, what you said, and I think the seatbelt example is a really good one. I'm struck by the fact that at the moment, A, we don't really yet have the mass that you just talked about of people that no, are saying. Not in the U.S., I think, but other places, I think, right? Some places. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But lots of places, no. And, and no. The, the more polluting places, no, including ourselves in China and India. So I'm struck by that. And I'm also struck by, I mean, I, I don't know how to measure the individual thing. Obviously, you know, we recycle now and there are certain things we do. I don't know the answer. So I'm conti I continue to be struck by most of us, myself included, are not making significantly different individual choices. And most of us are not making, deciding to collectively force choices different choices well, in terms of even the flying less thing think about this it would it didn't become an individual option post 9 11 companies made decisions about their ability to, to to um to expect employees to fly less and that changed the business class flyer those are those were companies all committing together that said okay we don't have to expect you to fly as often as you did 
And so that, in some sense, that changed individual behavior, right? That changed the individual behavior of a business person. But it falls in line with not necessarily the individual feeling a need to do it less, but a, a sort of company structure allowing that to happen. Like if you change the construct of the nine to five and you allowed people to stay home and you make people will make those choices, but you can't tell people to go against the grain of what's going to make their lives easier. I think we have to expose that there is a kind of privilege in deciding not to do so. Absolutely. You know what I mean? No question about that. Like, I think a lot of people would love to take public transportation if it was going to be more efficient. But we know that we know people spend a ton of money, the car industry in particular, making sure that that is not a choice that people are making. Individual actions, I think, resonates with Americans because it's at the core of who American America is. Right. In some ways that I need to feel like I'm in control. But I think on some level, Americans also have to admit that there are people who are in great, have greater control over your lives than you want to admit, which are your bosses, <laughs> you know, and corporations, so corporations. I mean, certain certain choices are kind of set for you, preset. And we might have to sort of unpack those things. And we have and to, corporations. We haven't unpacked that for a lot of people. And corporations are heavily invested in making sure that you are comfortable in certain ways and that you don't ask the, the right kind of questions, right? Yep. So Amazon, they have one day delivery now. And does yep. anyone bother to ask, like, what does that actually cost? And what's the cost of that what's in terms the... of driver safety? Remember, yeah. people, mm-hmm. you know, and people sitting on people in diapers, mm-hmm. like the efficiency that we're getting on one side and Not I mean, even I, just the human cost of that, though, yeah, but just like yeah. shipping in general. The yeah. fact that now people don't leave their houses if everything's shipped to them. Like, can we think about the cost of all of that flying and driving, wear and tear on the roads, all the vehicles, all the packing materials? Like, that's just one industry. And we haven't talked about the fuel industries. Really interesting. We do not exhibit the interest in laying on these companies because the products they provide, we tell themselves that we need. It's it's so easy to ask the question like, you know, what, you know, oh, do you want world peace? Like, yes, would you give up? Would you eat one meal, less meal a day to make sure that other people ate? Yeah, but that's not really the question. That's not really what we'd have to give up to feed a billion people. You'd have to give up something massive because it would be a massive societal change. So like the real question is like, in order to solve climate change, would you be willing to give up shipping? Would you be, re- would you be yeah, willing to gasoline. give up getting... <laughs> imports into your area. Are you okay with all the products and services that you get to be within an hour drive of your house? And then people be like, I don't know, one to 2% Celsius sounds okay. You know, (laughs) (laughs) but I I think for to Jason's point, that's the cultural shift, right? That's the cultural shift around value, right? Is it okay for you to wait two weeks for a package to be delivered traditionally? Or do you you see, and when you just said that, Inside, I was like, oh, hell no. Oh, yeah. Automatically. <laughs> but, but I mean, that's. And that's the problem. <laughs> Why would you not be? You were okay with it when you were a child. Jason, in defense of travel, we have the option to travel, right? When, and so if we have the option, we're going to take it. I, I, I don't see any other way around that. I mean, you're saying that for work, if we could structure our work so that we don't have to go very far, I suppose that's something that we can make that we could do, a lot of industries would immediately fizzle. That's great. Um, a lot of companies and corporations will make less money. I'm not saying that's necessarily bad or good. I'm just saying that is absolutely a result of the modern world uh, that is 
we have been able to build up the things that we have because people can travel from point A to point B in just a few hours. Now, would you be willing to give up? Well, I don't know. Would you be willing to give up things like uh, refrigeration? Would you give up refrigeration, right? If we could solve some massive part of the climate change question? I mean, this is a fantasy, but these are the sort of large scale advancements we'd have to give up. Now, if we were gonna give up traveling on a mass scale, the kinds of things that you would give up um, the, the actual physical products on top of that, like the cultural and social products, you would just know fewer people. You'd be able to keep in contact with fewer people. If, if that's the kinds of lies that we would be leading. Now, I can't sit here and say that I want to choose that. That's, that's not a choice that I can make. Now, going back to what we were saying earlier, if we could shift culture from the top level, Right. If there were, I don't know, if there were fewer flights, if we did invest in infrastructure and we did invest in, in better trains or more hybrid vehicles, electric cars, it, that sort of thing. If we change the way that we thought about travel, because we have to have it, we have to have it for Trisha's highly personal reasons, but also for commercial reasons as well. If we did that, then that would be amazing. That would be an advance. But I don't think we can sit here and be like, let's all travel less. Like that's, it's not so simple. You can't just excise it out of your life. I think, but you know what, Chris, you make a really great point. I think there's always this, this push pull between the sacrifice, right? There's a, there's a language of sacrifice there. And there's also a sort of soothing that comes with the language of sacrifice, which I think we have to abandon. The question is, what are the costs to making different choices? And how do we set those things up in a different way? So, for example, if it's about business travel, you can ask yourself, can we start, and which a lot of people started doing, can we do video calling? Can we do all of that kind of stuff? Is that possible? And people made conscious decisions to do that. And so suddenly, a, a, you know, a business meeting doesn't make sense anymore, right? Um, and so that, and but it, it wasn't out of a sense of sacrifice. It was about like, can we, how do we do, how do we get the thing that we want in a different way. And I think that's a really, really important distinction because I, I, I really feel like there is a kind of self-soothing that comes from the, has, has emerged out of the environmental movement. Like I'm doing this thing, I'm doing this thing. And it's very self-involved. And I think that, and I think a lot of companies get a lot of pleasure out of pushing that narrative not recognizing that for a lot of communities that are impacted by negative environmental problems, many of those community members can't make different choices because they're at the mercy of folks who have made poor choices. And so they're living in a community where if they stop with their bags, it's not going to change what's happening environmentally in many of those communities. So I, it's just, I think that, I think that question of like, what are the costs and how do we do it differently is a much kind of smarter way to move forward than like, what are you willing to sacrifice? That's a different, that's a different shade of the same question. But one question leaves you saying, I've given up something. And the other question is an invitation to coming up with new strategies and new ways of being. Because the other part of it too is families live very far apart from each other. So you're also, am I, am I going to be comfortable with video chats with Would grandma? You? But to be fair, that's a choice that we make because we can. It's a, Families can move far. They can live far away from each other. But even that, even but that you is. you say can is a choice also because of business choices. Yes, I was well. just going to say. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, it's, it's, 
It's more we made a, We made a choice to move stop. industry away from where people live and to move commercial areas away from where people live. And all that was, was made in, um, in concert with the technologies that we were developing to make sure that happened. Uh, so Jason, we're going to give you the last word. So what did you learn? Uh, do you agree or disagree? Where is Trisha wrong? Where am I right? <laughs> Just start wherever you like. Well, I, the, well, the only thing I want to say Well, is... start with who's right, me? Or... No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Go ahead. The question I continue to be left with is, it seems that if we don't at some point soon make different choices both on macro and micro levels, the planet's gonna, going to be uninhabitable for a lot of people. And at some point, I think we are going to make drastic choices. Like at some point we will. I'm just, I don't know when, like we're not ready to now. And it's just a question, like, I don't know what's going to happen. Like are a lot of people going to die or certain islands going to, you know, go underwater. Like I don't, I'm struck by that question, but I, I don't know the answer. Those are my final words. A lot of people are going to die. Yeah. Also yeah. your final words. I felt like you could have done better. Okay. Um, <laughs> I don't feel like we moved the needle with Jason. Well, I, I don't think I don't think that was the point. I don't. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because if Jason, if Jason is a person who is passionate about this, and we didn't move the needle, I'm curious about what the outcome Jason wanted. I think Jason really was committed to the personal responsibility outcome. That's a very Jason sort of thing to commit to be committed to. I mean, let's just talk about Jason like he's not here. No, but no, like, no, no. No, no, I'm no, I'm I'm endorsing that we do that. No, but <laughs> what I'm saying is that who really cares about this stuff? Yeah, Jason is very big into personal responsibility, and he takes his own personal responsibility extremely seriously, which is how we got to this conversation. And yet I'm is still that fucking flying? What is wrong I, with you? Anyway, <laughs> because you because you have to. Okay, uh, let's move on to recommendations, which is something that you've seen, heard, read, or experienced. You think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Jason, you should go first. I am going to now officially recommend something we just talked briefly about. I think I'm not even sure we were recording at the time a couple episodes ago, but that is Between Two Ferns, the movie on Netflix. Uh -huh. Fantastic. I finished it. It's great. Like, just like a Jason recommendation, zero details whatsoever. <laughs> uh, people, I, Can you I give think, the people a taste? I think Zach Galifianakis, so, you know, he, he, he plays himself in quotes. He, he plays a character with the same name. And he's basically just this really resentful uh, guy who interviews these celebrities and asks just really provocative in the worst ways questions and manifests kind of racism and anti-Semitism and sexism um, and homophobia and but but you know he asks these celebrities questions some of them just outrageous questions but it's funny and then others like kind of the things people suspect about the celebrities anyway and like forces them to respond to you know Keanu Reeves being stupid like um and it's just, I find it very very funny and it's like it uncomfortable and the funny celebrities ways. are the celebrities are in on it this is a bit it should be pointed out this is well, a real interview that he's doing with them that that is true but I believe that they don't prepare for it. Like he doesn't tell them what he's going to ask. Um, and so, it, so what's that? <laughs> that they're up for the gig. Yeah, they don't, they don't rehearse. And so 
I mean, that that in itself creates it. So just this is actually not in the movie, but it's in one of the funnier die clips where how this whole thing started when he interviews Steve Carell and Steve Carell keeps cutting off the questions because he's like, I know what you're going to ask me. You're going to make me look stupid. <laughs> and it's it's so good, like seeing their personalities duel. It's it's, uh, it's what I think is great about Between Two Ferns. And I am I'm not a fan, but I don't hate it either, is that. The way the interview starts and where the bit ends, that's where I find the humor. I do believe that they have been prepared and they have an idea. They've seen the show. They have an idea of where it's going to go. And I think that he is throwing them curveballs. <laughs> uh, if you've ever seen yeah. one, the interview that he did with Barack Obama, like, I mean, also oh. he was president. Like, it's quite clear that Obama knew it was coming up. And it was also quite clear that Obama was acting. You know, like, it was quite clear that he had a And Obama was great at it. I mean, oh, some people oh handle it very well. Like, Natalie Portman did not know what to do. She literally, he would ask a question. She would say, pass. Like, she, <laughs> she did not know how to handle him. Obama was fantastic. Um, great. And I, I'm going to, one little spoil I'll give, just an example of, I thought, a great moment. So, he interviews Brie Larson in the movie and he says to her, so I read that your parents divorced when you were seven. Was it your fault? And she <laughs> like, it caught her so off guard. She actually laughed hysterically. I just, I found that hilarious. Awesome. Trisha. Oh my gosh. I wish I had ex experienced something. Um, I did. I, I know, right? It's weird. So, I mean, I recommended the full podcast before, but um, this particular episode was really enjoyable to me. Um, it's a Here to Slay episode, and it's actually quite a, a, kind of just an interesting one. It's um, it's called Emmy's Extravaganza, and um, the two ladies interview um, a critic by the name of Travel Anderson. Um, he's, uh, he's a director of culture and entertainment at Out Magazine. And what I loved about it was that it was really off. It was like off the cuff and just kind of, you know, when you're listening to an interview and you could tell that people are prepared with very pat answers. Sure. Um, and then you listen to one where it's like you are, it's almost like you're listening in on a conversation between girlfriends um, who are really being very direct. I think he was able to be that way with the two of them about the Emmys. And so it was really, really interesting to hear his take on the Emmy winners, um, to hear his take on um, the politics of being an interview, of doing the interviews behind the scene after someone's won. Um, he does a really interesting thing about, um, he talks about, um, I think, the person who represented Essence being able to be at the um, in the room interviewing a lot of the celebrities after and her questions were so pointed about things that most like most people talk about but don't ask so he would say after she raised the question um, like for example I think she raised a question with RuPaul about the fact that he doesn't work with black people and the whole room went silent <laughs> and I oop um, it was just, um, so it was like a really nice, um, it was just a really fun interview, but also one of those where it was like, oh, you're revealing so much about the process that I really enjoy what I'm learning. Um, and so that was a, a really fun, fun thing I listened to. What I wanted to do is I wanted to recommend Dolomite is my name because I've been seeing so much about it, but I've not had a chance to watch it yet. I want to watch it too. The new Eddie Murphy movie. <laughs> what a weird recommendation. You haven't seen it, but you want people to see it? I wanted to, because I, I've been enjoying people watching it. Like, it's, you know, when someone is enjoying something so much, I've been, 
I've just been watching it third hand, looking at people loving it and talking about it and how how much they're laughing and enjoying it. And I was like, oh, that sounds like so much fun. It's nice when someone's having a, that much fun watching something. So I've been I've been like enjoying it at a distance. And so <laughs> but I haven't had a chance to pick it up. I haven't seen the original either, uh, and I really oh, want to see that. And the, oh. the there was an NPR segment on it, and it was fascinating. Oh, wait a minute! I, so there is an original story. Okay. Yes. Oh. I have been burned before in recommending shows that <laughs> I have not watched all the way through. She's <laughs> got to have it. it. Uh, fell apart. <laughs> Battles Club <laughs> Galactica. <laughs> fell apart. Um. I was I was watching those shows, having such a great time, and I just did not see it coming. Uh, okay, but like, that said, it's like Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this is my recommendation. So my favorite book that I've ever read in my entire life is Watchmen by Alan Moore and I, I Dave. I knew this Gibbons, was coming. I knew which, it. I knew this is where this was going. Which is a graphic novel that was published by DC Comics in 1985. It is uh, a story about an alternate timeline where masked vigilantes uh, take to the street and what happens when they are outlawed and then one of them gets killed. It turns out into a mind-bending, world-spanning uh, adventure with uh, ultimate consequences. So... Um, HBO has commissioned a show that begins now in uh, this past season. They've had uh, two episodes so far. And I want to say the show is a sequel to the Watchmen book. The, the events in the Watchmen happened November 1985. And this story picks up in November 2019 and oh. just sort of logically leads forward where they would be 27 years after the climactic events of the novel. Uh, what the show is about is about, so after the events of the novel, cops, for reasons, <laughs> watch it, for reasons, cops uh, are now masked to protect their identities. So it's sort of the substitute for the superhero thing that was happening oh, wow. in the graphic novel. And you're following these cops. Regina King uh, is incredible so far. Don Johnson's also in it. And there is a very heavy focus on uh, race and they are working to stop the Seventh Cavalry, which is sort of this white supremacist group that's operating in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the story takes place. Um, am I recommending the show? I've been burned before. I'm enjoying the show. <laughs> what I want to recommend? Episode. Just recommend what? an episode. Then you then you're safe. Well, what I want to recommend is Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. Watching the show, and it should be known that Alan Moore distances himself from any properties created off of his original material that is v for vendetta league of extraordinary gentlemen from hell and now um this this movie watchmen the movies and anything that's come after it um he distances himself from it i think this is well done i am a huge critic of anything watchmen because i agree with alan moore he told a story with a beginning middle and end those characters had import and they don't exist before or after the events of that story However, I think what they've done here is really of the moment while still respecting and representing Moore and Gibbons' point of view. Uh, last thing I want to say about this, when Watchmen came out, it came out as a monthly comic, 12 of them. And in between every comic, in the back of every comic, there was like supporting documents from the world, whether it be newspaper clippings from that alternate timeline, whether it be like a psychological report of one of the characters that fell out of their file in the hospital so it, it was like world building between the issues and it was all helpful in understanding the world that the watchman was taking place in 
And it was a great way that you can show and not necessarily tell. Well, HBO is doing the same thing before every episode of Watchmen, you can go to hbo.com slash pdpedia. And there are documents that show you how the world got to where it was. And whether it be like a press release for this or a Supreme Court decision on that, then um, it, it really is building a world. And I just love new media when television can do something different. So you having to read and study to learn more about all the little things you're seeing in the background appeals to me greatly. So uh, listeners, read The Watchmen. Uh, watch the Watchmen, but um, I, I don't know. I don't know how is it going to end up. I don't know, <laughs> but uh, I think you both would enjoy it. I think the last thing I'm going to say about this in their version of their world in 2019, Robert Redford has been president since the late 80s. In looking at the Tulsa massacre of the 1920s, they the government American government has gotten around to paying black people reparations in their world. So black people don't pay taxes. And that is causing a lot of resentment. And I thought that was just a really interesting take on the reparation conversation. And what's more on Pedopedia, they have like a obviously fictional uh, decision by an appeals court, which lays out the road to reparations, which when you read it, I was thinking, could someone actually use this one day to prove standing and harm? It, I don't know. It's it's very interesting stuff. So I would recommend The Watchmen, but check in with me in a year. You know how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> so have you two seen it? No, but I've been seeing a lot about it. And somebody came on my timeline and said, who's the black person that I need to be reading so that I can understand The Watchmen better? You and just so the, read The Watchmen. I, so, so I you know, I read it. I read your copy of it, Chris, a long time ago, and then I saw the movie, and I Sorry. really was not yeah Sorry impressed with the movie. And so when I saw HBO was doing a series, I wasn't interested. And then just last night, um, when I was hanging out with some other dads on Halloween, um, two of them were like, "You have to see it." And I said what I just said. To you. I was like, "I don't like the movie." They're like, forget the movie, forget it. You have to see. And one of them said, in particular, season one, episode one of Watchmen. But I didn't understand until you just said it, Chris, that that it takes place in, in the present. Like, that, I didn't realize that it's a sequel, basically. <sighs> and that's it. Jason, I forgot. You hung out. with It was like your annual gathering of Halloween dads. Yes. Last night was my second annual. Yes. We, we talked about that last complete, year on the podcast. Complete uh, sexual division of labor on Halloween. Yeah. Yes gender roles exactly yeah. what we should have right <laughs> so helpful so helpful Did, so helpful everyone just knows exactly where they stand they yeah. just look in their yeah. pants no and that's that you go there you do this we're going to stay here Did you all talk about sports all night actually we talked about race all night i think we did not talk were about you the only white person in the room yes fun fun for you fun for everybody else i'm sure it what no it was good were people able to be candid, you know, because I don't know if you know, but sometimes when there's one white person in the room, the black people do not act the way they would if you weren't there. Are you ever conscious of that? Well, I've definitely been told that. There's no way for me to know for sure. So I don't know. I don't know. You'd have to ask. The listening devices. <laughs> <laughs> you should spy on your black friends. You I know, go to the bathroom should, and like I leave a little secret. You should uh, hear how me and Trisha cut up right before you join these calls. <laughs> <laughs> the things we say. No. That was-
That would be a test. Anyway, you could actually, the entire season two of this show, you can see how we behave when you're not around. Oh boy, uh, you're both incredible. Lovely. And on that note, bye. Bye. bye.